Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 35 Batman v Superman Trailer 2 I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DCCU apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by the DC movie slate and those eagerly anticipating the cinematic universe. This episode, we break down and analyze the second Batman v Superman trailer. We'll address some concerns and then wrap with some speculation. This podcast dives deep into the DCCU. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that make up the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love the DCEU and who love to chew their food. Welcome back. We're going to get into that analysis and the content of that trailer right away. And then we're going to go back and discuss some of the larger topics like market strategy and the reception to the trailer at the end. My overall impression is that this trailer contained a lot of great content, but had a confronting presentation that's more indicative of the marketing goals than a reflection of the film. Maybe a concise way to put this is that this was a story trailer meant to set expectations for the general audience, and it provides the most content between the teaser, the Comic-Con trailer, and the sneak peek, but it's probably the least representative of the film's style. But at the end of the day, we've seen less than seven minutes of the film in total. That's 5% of the film or less. So relax. But for now, let's just get right into it and start with the big picture. To give us a thematic lens, that first teaser was for tone and atmosphere. And then the Comic-Con trailer, well, that was the hero trailer. It reinforced that tone while building up the world and the heroes. But the second trailer, this is the villain trailer. It establishes the villains and it builds up the story, which is going to challenge the heroes and bring them into conflict. If you view it broadly under this umbrella, then a lot of the choices, the tone, and discomfort start to make some sense. The focus of this trailer isn't the film as a whole. We're not going home to Smallville. We're not being romantic with Lois. Bruce isn't being comforted by Alfred. And our heroes aren't getting congratulated by Congress. This trailer was largely driven by the points of the story which cause discord and conflict. Clark and Bruce aren't seeing eye to eye. Lex Luthor's brewing machinations. Superman and Batman fighting and then finally, the introduction of that third act threat. This trailer can be seen as an extension or a reflection of our villains. The wild swings and tone without regard for convention or form, bouncing from humor to deadly seriousness. Well, that's reflective of Lex Luthor's personality. And our hero shots are fractured, cut up, and they move in stutter steps like The Walking Dead, recycled and reformed and reanimated like General Zod. The entire Frankenstein feel.
reveal, the tearing down of what came before, the powerful revelations, the excess, the shock and the awe, that all reflects Doomsday. Maybe. How does Wonder Woman fit into all this? Well, maybe more on that later. Let's just get right into the actual breakdown. We open with an establishing shot of Chicago's Broad Art Museum, with a line of luxury cars in front of a red carpet event. Bruce Wayne pulls up, driving an Aston Martin DB Mark III, exemplifying his wealth, class, and understated taste. I point out the car because on my first viewing, Bruce doesn't get out of the car until Clark asks, who is that? So I thought for a moment that Clark's attention, like mine, was on the car, and that Bruce, Clark, and I were all car guys. (laughs) But on more careful inspection, however, the scene is cut with a trivial continuity issue. Basically, when Clark asks the question, Bruce is already standing on the red carpet. But when we cut back, Bruce is getting out of the car again. For the purposes of the trailer, that makes for a better illustration of who Bruce Wayne is, and that happens a lot throughout. When the dialogue is saying one thing, something else appears that suggests or reinforces the line. Just standard trailer stuff. I feel like I'm supposed to say something about Bruce driving himself, but I don't have anything to say. It's unclear whether Clark genuinely doesn't recognize Bruce Wayne, or whether he's playing to his secret identity. Until we get a little more context, I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. Now, incidentally, do you know what Carlos Slim Halu or Amonico Ortega look like? They routinely trade places with Bill Gates for being the richest person on this planet. All of their fortunes are self-made, incidentally. If you can't bring their face to mind, glass houses and all. Lex, you're having a difficult day. Hmm. If nothing else, I can at least learn the Flash's secret identity. I have no idea who this is. This guy's gonna kill us! No, he won't. You bruise, but you don't kill, do you? Clark. You've made your point. (laughs) Bruce Wayne. Who the hell is Bruce Wayne? Anyways, the photographer who says, you must be new, doesn't seem to know Clark or that he's new, so he's probably not Daily Planet cub reporter and photographer Jimmy Olsen. Note that Mercy is standing behind them, perhaps keeping an eye down the red carpet for Bruce on Lex's behalf. Inside, Clark makes first contact, and he asks, what's your position on the Bat Vigilante in Gotham? Bruce is searching Clark's face, like, what's your agenda? And he gives this great smirk. Incidentally, I actually love Clark. Clark's question, which is just about as neutral as possible. Although some may say that vigilante has a negative connotation, it really depends, since vigilantism is implied to spring up only when and where necessary, and it can carry a positive connotation if you believe existing law enforcement to be inadequate. Why not say Batman? Well, there's a school of thought that utilizing a name legitimizes that entity. For example, when the military starts to call him Superman, it's because he's their super. I'm not saying that I agree with that, but it's an approach that takes a certain amount of integrity to commit to. And indeed, Clark doesn't in his next line, which, although it's objectively true, clearly comes from a position. Civil liberties are being trampled in our city. People living in fear. He thinks he's above the law. So Clark's laying out his position, which gets supported somewhat by the imagery. We see the chained up, bruised, bleeding, and branded criminal, clearly in derogation of his civil rights, and then the cover of the Gotham Free Press with that punny headline, Bat Brand of Justice. Now note the editorializing by the headline. Gotham still views this as justice even if Clark is technically right. And if you were living in terror because of that criminal, maybe you'd be willing to see Batman beat and brand for some sense of security. 
So already there's a tension between Clark's ideal of justice and what some of the people of Gotham say that they want. Now, incidentally, the Roman numerals on the top of the paper are nonsensically arranged. They don't translate into a year or anything else. Now, another world-building point is that if the Gotham Free Press has the bat in its headline and Clark can raise him in an interview without being laughed at, the Batman has probably transcended urban legend. This is something that intelligent people can talk about or publish on. Now, speaking of legends, we get the gorgeous daytime shot of Superman's statue and the BZE memorial. We see tokens of remembrance, flags, flowers, candles, and pictures collected at the base of the wall, with people hanging their heads observantly while the rest of the world treats it as a normal park. One double amputee in a wheelchair looks up at the statue, and perhaps he's played by Scoot McNary. Well, we go back to the conversation, and Bruce replies back. The Daily Planet criticizing those who think they're above the law is hypocritical, wouldn't you say? Considering every time your hero saves a cat out of a tree, you write a puff piece editorial about an alien who can burn the whole place down. So we don't know how the conversation has been edited, if at all, for this trailer, but a few interesting things about Bruce's response. In terms of salience, it's not exactly. Bruce is switching tracks and topics and launching into an attack on the Daily Planet and Superman, which has no immediate bearing on Clark's position on Batman, or even his own. In literal fact, it may be hypocritical, but only if Superman is actually doing anything above the law. Now, broadly speaking, rescuing people is legal. Contrast that against apprehending and branding criminals, which is clearly illegal. However, Bruce sort of has a point in that Superman's power is perhaps unchecked, which makes him a law unto himself and therefore in that limited sense above the law. Bruce seems to be pointing out that that potentiality is being placated by disproportionately trivial good deeds like saving cats from out of trees. And as someone who often has to mediate a lot of disagreements for a living, what's interesting to me is that like a lot of my clients, they're actually both saying much the same thing. Thing, but without necessarily realizing it. Roughly speaking, the concerns about denying people their civil liberties is what if you take these measures against somebody who is innocent or undeserving? And Batman's essential response is trust me, they're not innocent. And similarly, the concern about Superman's extreme unchecked power is, what if you were to turn and use this against us? And Superman's essential response is, trust me, I won't turn against you. So the root of their issue is trust, and it's going to be resolved by trust, eventually. The visuals and the dialogue are also reinforcing that general dichotomy and classification Batman as a policeman and Superman as a fireman. It's an imperfect analogy, but it's still a valuable illustration, which we won't get into here, but let's see how the trailer reinforces it. We're shown the results of Batman's police-like intervention, crime-stopping and apprehending, and then he's backed up by Gotham's finest, who complete the process by recovering and booking the criminal. For Superman, we're shown his reaction to crisis is like emergency rescue services. He's saving people from the rocket explosion, from the flood, and in a prior trailer, he actually turns over a rescuee to firemen. Indeed, Bruce acknowledges that local fireman classic of saving cats from trees, which has its place across the Superman mythos in the comics, TV, and film. So if you didn't already know it, this trailer is subconsciously priming you to understand how each hero approaches their duty 
duty or tackles a crisis. Now, on that front, Bruce is being a little disingenuous by highlighting saving a cat from trees, which this Superman may or may not have done. But while he's saying that, we're provided with visual evidence of much more substantial interventions against major disasters, both man-made and natural. So we know that Bruce's position on this is skewed. He's misrepresenting Superman's contribution, similar to how Clark calls Batman a terror, even if some Gothamites call it justice. We all have our biases and our blind spots, and Bruce and Clark are no different. Bruce's response also reveals that he's aware of Clark Kent, or at least the Daily Planet and their position on Superman. So he's been keeping tabs, not just directly on Superman, but how others are reacting to or reporting on Superman. Bruce isn't just sitting in his echo chamber, he knows how the people think. But Clark seems to need to check on this, and he points out, most of the world doesn't share your opinion, Mr. Wayne. Now, if Clark were making a legitimate argument, he'd be engaging in the appeal to authority, which is further taking this argument off the rails. But this isn't a contest of logic or a debate. This is an interview where he's trying to prompt answers and probe his subject's mind. And he's doing a brilliant job because he's getting under Bruce's skin. And let's just quickly pause to say that if we take Clark's statement at face value as an accurate assessment of what the status quo is, well, that lines up with our predictions throughout the course of this podcast that by and large, the world trusts Superman enough to allow him to operate. Superman knows that he has detractors, doubters, but he isn't acting against the will of the world overall. Bruce, however, is clearly one of those detractors. Maybe it's the Gotham City in me, but we just have a bad history with freaks dressed as clowns. I love the delivery of this line because of him looking away, then looking Clark up and down, and then just staring him in the eye. It's darkly ambiguous. You can see him immediately busting out laughing and then just claiming that it was a joke, or leaping forward to throttle Clark, or just doing nothing at all. Now we know there's something seething underneath all this, but Bruce is trying to play it as gallows humor, referencing the notorious Joker as comparable to Superman. And that's a juicy reference to a larger world and mythology. Now, that comparison is as implausible as it is unflattering, and it's difficult to sympathize with the idea that somebody who's murdering people in the streets of Gotham is comparable to somebody who saves the entire planet and dedicates the next two years of his life to saving people. But it shows us where Bruce's head is at. He's bearing an identifiably unreasonable grudge, which has colored his thinking. And what's interesting about that is that he's wearing this all on his sleeve as Bruce. Now, there's a couple ways to interpret this. One way is that he knows who Clark is and is specifically trying to elicit a reaction out of him. Another way you could take this is that this is an older Bruce who has earned his gray hairs and doesn't have to put up as much of a facade as he did in his youth. He doesn't have to play the role of a billionaire playboy airhead, but he could be a cantankerous and opinionated older man who doesn't care if his views align with society, facts, or reason. The older Bruce in Batman Beyond or in The Dark Knight Returns didn't bother with the same kind of social niceties as the Bruce in the animated series or in Batman Begins. So we get to have a Bruce with a little more gravity to him, who is a force to reckon with as well. And that makes our next character, Lex Luthor, all the more insufferable. Whatever respect Bruce may have earned with the years, Lex disregards it by flamboyantly calling them boys. Lex seemingly has no regard 
regard for solemnity or gravity, and he explodes into the trailer to cut the tension between Clark and Bruce. And we are left to wonder slightly what would have happened if he hadn't. Lex recognizes both his guests. He credits himself with bringing them together, and he makes pleasantries, greeting Bruce, who shakes his hand and mumbles Lex, showing that they're familiar with one another. However, with Clark, Lex offers his name, meaning that this is the first time that Clark and Lex have ever met. His jokes about Clark's grip and the two of them fighting either indicate his awareness of their identities, or it's simply dramatic irony for the audience's sake. I admit, I chuckled a bit. This portrayal of Lex is consistent with the one that was celebrating the coming of the Red Capes and who heralded the battle to come. Part of the reason to make Bruce a more sincere personality is to create space for this character of Lex, who is over-the-top, hyperactive, high-pitched, energetic, and lively. It plays well to contrast against Clark's stoic professionalism and Bruce's grim cynicism. Can you imagine if Bruce was a bubbly himbo and Lex was this bound? So the filmmakers knew how to balance their characters for this film and the Justice League beyond. Now, whether that performance ultimately works out or not, for me, it's going to come down to his larger plan. To me, it's clear that this scene is a part of Lex's performance and his plan. Perhaps there's a little bit of, so we're all putting on faces? Well, let me show you how to put on a face, boys. Maybe. I think he is this person, but not all the way, not all the time, or in every circumstance. We've already already heard his quieter lines and his more menacing behavior. So I'm personally going to believe that there is calculation in this, that Lex isn't just a psychotic mustache twirler. And the facts established that he is brilliant. I mean, he transformed his business into something capable of commanding the respect of the government. And that kind of brilliance doesn't have to manifest itself as just another stuffy, stoic businessman. However, I do need to be convinced of his brilliance, and that can be a high and a difficult bar. We've discussed in the past how it's really hard to write highly intelligent characters without resorting to something that compromises that intelligence. Zod being a product of his programming, genetic, cultural, and personal, or Batman suffering from trauma and a benign form of insanity. Hopefully, Lex Luthor's plans can be rationalized and are persuasive, and I still maintain that Lex probably has a better grasp of the entire picture than anyone else, and I think that includes a painful level of self-awareness. He has lines that reflect a certain personal insight and understanding of his own Faustian brokering. Okay, so we're halfway through the trailer, and from here, it takes an odd turn into throwing everything at us in crazy quick succession, including this stuttering edit, which lets them condense footage we've already seen, but which is really jarring and unpleasant in my opinion. But fortunately, we already know that this isn't how they play out in the film. It just seems that they had so much they wanted to show us without the time to luxuriate in those shots, so they use this percussive edit technique. We get hit with an onslaught of images old and new and a smash of lines, and I think the best approach is for us to use the dialogue as an outline and just tackle the new images. So here we go. Do you know what the oldest lie in America is, Senator? Now, this one's fascinating, because Lex delivered the same line in the Comic-Con trailer, quietly in his abode, with a different answer, that devils don't come from the ground beneath us, they come from the sky. Now here, Lex is delivering the line in the halls of the Capitol building, where anyone might hear him, and he concludes that the lie is that power can be innocent. 
this delivery is louder, more energetic, and more cheeky. I'm curious whether this is a replacement for the previous scene, or whether it's a reprisal or a callback. For example, the many origins of Joker's scars in The Dark Knight. Lex might have the compulsion to say this with different answers as the mood or the scenario fits him. Alternatively, it might be trying to reconcile what the devil is in Lex's mind to more consistently cast Superman as a deity or demon rather than mix those metaphors. Now, confronting a senator on her home turf and in person does make Lex a little more proactive rather than just eccentric. He's hands-on doing this himself rather than through back channels, lobbyists, phone calls, or backroom deals. We get a brief glimpse of Senator Finch, and this time with a name placard, and she's wearing blue, which suggests that she's going to be chairing at least two hearings in this film. The investigation while she's in white, and then likely the announcement of their findings when she's wearing blue. Now, a quick comment about his answer. Isn't it interesting that his response that power can be innocent includes self-condemnation? I mean, Lex Luthor is undoubtedly powerful himself. The senator is powerful. Superman is powerful. And yet, logically extended, he's casting doubt on them all. I'll need to think about it some more, but I'm a little skeptical about his answers, though. It seems to be sort of a restatement of Lord Acton's famous remark, which isn't an American idea or lie, and indeed, the nation seemed to be founded on principles which were skeptical of undivided, unbalanced, and unchecked powers. So, food for thought later. Uh, The next line is, you're going to go to war, which we've already heard, but the images are new. We get to see a black Jeep Renegade cut off when a stray missile explodes across Fort Street and an F-22 crashes into a building. And I just want to take a second to point out that both in Smallville and in Metropolis, the U.S. military designated those to be battlegrounds with acceptable risk of casualties. This wasn't Superman causing, desiring, or accepting collateral damage in either location. This was Superman deferring to the expertise of people who've made warfare their profession. If a fireman tells you that you're going to have to leave your documents behind if you want to get out safely and alive, you defer to their expertise and regrettably follow their directions. The fireman doesn't want you to lose your documents, but he knows the risks, he prioritizes your life, and he advises you accordingly. If you lack a sophisticated understanding of structural fire and its dangers, you'd be foolish to oppose the advice for the sake of your documents. Likewise, the military didn't want A-10s and F-22s falling out of the sky onto civilian populations, but they knew the risks of not engaging the enemy. And so they okayed the mission and everyone was advised accordingly. They are extremely dangerous and we have been authorized to use deadly force. Roger, Guardian there, inbound to target. Thunder 1-2 calling Guardian. Guardian, do you read? Thunder 1-2, this is Guardian. I want you to put down everything you've got. Just north of my position. This will be danger close. Copy, danger close. Good luck, sir. Northcom Lightning 1, request permission to unleash the hounds. Northcom Lightning 1, you're clear to engage. Superman doesn't know anything about military strategy, acceptable losses, or the theater of war. And it would be ridiculous and naive of him to tell professional experts in the field that there should be no collateral damage whatsoever in order to achieve their goal. At no point did Superman do something that the U.S. military hadn't already accepted or approved as a potential consequence of something that they would have done themselves. Flying fighters against a hostile over-civilian airspace 
airspace means the possibility of downed planes crashing into that same civilian population. But the military deemed it a necessary risk. They're not blind to the possibility of collateral. In the Battle of Smallville, Colonel Hardy calls for an airstrike, even knowing that he's danger close and at risk of becoming collateral to that airstrike. It's that in their professional expertise, they opined the risk necessary. And this goes a long way towards explaining why the world's attitude is more grateful towards Superman than concerned with collateral, like some real-world detractors. If Superman's behavior is completely in line with what those who are tasked to protect them would do, and did, in fact, do themselves, there is very little rational basis on which to criticize Superman, except under some unrealistic, imaginary, and unseen standard that doesn't exist in this world. The U.S. military did the thing that their expertise believed would result in minimal overall casualties and maximum protection for all, and Superman was well within that. Note that the accusation Batman levels in response agrees that son of a bitch brought the war to us. Now, Batman's grievance isn't really in anything that Superman did or failed to do. He takes issue with Superman's mere existence and potentiality. Batman blames Superman not for how he acted in the Black Zero event, but that his existence led to the Black Zero event ever occurring. Earlier in the trailer, Bruce attacks Superman not for anything that he's actually done, but only for what he is and might do, an alien that can burn the whole place down. Contrast that against Clark's allegation that Batman is trampling civil liberties, which is an accusation of active wrongdoing. Generally, the latter is more fair, but the stakes are potentially higher in the former. Regardless, at least from this exchange, Batman doesn't fault Superman's action, but he still faults Superman's very being. Well, we're treated to additional shots of the BZE over Metropolis from Bruce's perspective, really giving us the weight of how astonishing this must have been from a ground level view. That said, don't make the mistake of believing that everyone witnessed to the event was psychologically traumatized. I'm not going to get into it now, but there's research into how Londoners psychologically thrived through and after the Blitz, being emboldened by surviving rather than shell-shocked. I'll put links in the show notes. If you want to account for for a return to normalcy and Metropolis bouncing back, precedent abounds throughout our war-torn history. But enough of that, the next line, Alfred says, you know you can't win this, it's suicide. Which may or may not be part of the same conversation, but if it is, it's an interesting nuance because in the Comic-Con trailer, Alfred acknowledges that Superman is not their enemy. Yet here, he declares the fight suicide. And that means that Alfred assesses the fight in Superman's favor, but not to the degree that Batman is merely stopped. Alfred understands that Batman will push this to the point of his own demise, irrespective of the fact fact that Superman is not their enemy. And in that sense, Alfred is absolving Superman of fault if Batman were to die at Superman's hand, because he characterizes the death as a suicide, blaming Batman's self-destructive intentions. And it should come as no surprise, but sometimes comic book fans need a reminder that characters need not be perfect, faultless, and flawless to be interesting, often quite the opposite. So we get a shot of Batman and Superman standing off in the rain and the flame, and then we see Superman 
Batman using his flight to push Batman, which cuts to Batman grappling down a dark multi-level structure. And then we get a better look at the Batjet, followed by some deceptive editing meant to reinforce Lex's next line, the greatest gladiator match in the history of the world, Son of Krypton versus Bat of Gotham. Now regarding the Batjet, a recent video of a model indicates that it likely has VTOL or vertical takeoff and landing capability, which enhances its versatility. We see Batman blazing away, so clearly he's comfortable with vehicle-mounted weaponry, and I personally advise listeners to start making themselves comfortable with the idea that Batman has no hang-ups about firearms or even lethal force necessarily. At a minimum, his weapons are firing live tracers, so I don't know that we can excuse these as rubber bullets. Rubber bullets. Honest try to keep an open mind and pick up the story from where it is, rather than come against it with some preconceived notions of what must be. More on this when we get to Doomsday later. We get a shot of Superman in a hail of gunfire and a little bit of evidence that he's leveled up a little. Vehicle-mounted weaponry could whip his head back in Man of Steel, and using heat vision was typically followed by a refractory period. Here, once he steals himself, he seems completely unaffected by the shots, and he's able to use his heat vision in flight and doesn't seem to get dizzy or have to shake his head after using his heat vision. Okay, next is Lois on the rooftop with Lex, and we get the exchange, you're psychotic. That's a three-syllable word for any thought too big for little minds. Again, I'm hoping that Lex earns these lines, because right now they're a little clunky, but I'm optimistic that he'll have a big idea for me to embrace with my open mind. I enjoy that Eisenberg is providing this consistent characterization or performance with his character as a hand talker, and although he gesticulates towards Lois, he doesn't actually touch her, and that's consistent with his Comic-Con trailer behavior. His raised hand gives us a clearer view of the bandage on his hand, and if the injury doesn't come from his own actions, I'll wager that Lois was the one who did it, maybe. Regardless, it's good to see Lois interacting with Lex, because it means that she isn't just brushed to the side, but she's engaged with the central villain and likely the central conflict. There's definitely more going on in this little scene than meets the eye. Consider how Lois is in an interesting tension. She's happy to insult Lex right to his face, but apparently unable to physically take him on, despite their close proximity. She couldn't swat away his hand or push him away. There's something keeping her in place. And of course that creates the possibility that Superman is under duress because Lex has Lois. The idea of Lois as a pressure point for Superman is hardly new within the Superman tradition and not really worth getting upset over. However, it's unclear if that's what's happening here or if that's just part of the equation. What is clear is that the film is trying to create layers of reasons for conflict beyond just a hostage situation. Take, for example, Batman's next line. It's time you learned what it means to be a man. Well, why? Why is it time to learn that? That can't be his entire motivation, right? But it does reveal that some part of Batman's resentment is in feeling that Superman can't relate to or empathize with humanity and that he needs to be humbled. However, learning means not perishing, but acquiring and retaining knowledge. And that suggests that a part of Batman doesn't intend Superman's death. What value is there to a lesson if it isn't retained long enough to be appreciated? So it seems that Superman might be more than just, say, a 
convenient heavy bag for Batman to work out some issues. Anyways, we see the Batmobile pull in front of a standing Superman and then Batman knocking a roughed up Superman against a brick wall, the spackling crumbling on impact. And then we get a glimpse of desert action Batman and we'll talk about that later. We get a huge explosion and then we have Superman imploring Batman to stay down. If I wanted it, you'd be dead already. Rather clearly stating that he doesn't want Batman dead. And equally clearly, Lex wants someone dead. He's characterized it as gladiatorial combat. And then he says, if man won't kill God, the devil will do it. It would seem that Batman fails or declines to kill Superman, so Lex must bring his devil in to do it. However, we still don't know or understand Lex's motivations or machinations just yet, how or why this makes sense to do, or the basis of his enmity against Superman. And I'm happy to learn all of that eventually. We get a reprisal of Mercy walking Zod's body, but we're given a little more context, and we get Lex gleefully receiving this bounty at the end of the hall. And then we get a shot from over the shoulder of the Superman memorial at a giant white structure, and my heart leaps a bit, because we all know what that is. We've discussed it just last episode, the Kryptonian scout ship. If the logistics of moving it are impossible, just deal with it where it is. Longtime listeners already know all the storytelling potential that the scout ship houses and represents, and here we see it arcing with lightning and giving life to Lex's devil. We get an interior shot, and Lex is fuming and furious, which is part of the reason that I'm expecting his performance to have range and not simply be that intentionally grating character. Well, that interior shot is within the scout ship, with a mix of Kryptonian and human technology inside. Remember on Krypton, there are no straight lines or metal, so the object on the right of the screen is clearly human, but on the left, we see an operating floating sensor. And even more curiously, Superman standing calmly with his arms folded. Perhaps he's returning to Lex after his encounter with Batman. Then we see even more evidence of working hybrid technology with a glimpse of Doomsday's birthing Matrix. Superman says, what have you done? There's 20 substantive seconds left in the trailer and with a monstrous roar, enter Doomsday. So before we go any further, let's discuss Doomsday as a third act threat. We'll discuss the decision to include him into the trailer later, but for now, let's talk about the choice to use Doomsday at all. And granted, we're yet to be told that this is or will be called Doomsday, but let's just go with that moniker now for the sake of convenience. Note, for example, that never in Man of Steel is the Black Zero actually named that in dialogue, but it's a useful name, so we use it all the time. So a quick three-point roadmap on the defense of Doomsday. One, this is an adaptation, so set aside your preconceptions. Two, this rendition can have thematic importance. And three, I believe Doomsday's appearance will evolve. So first, like we always advise you with this show, you should keep an open mind and do your best to set aside your prejudices and preconceptions of fictional entities before evaluating the merits of what's before you. Given the emotional weight and narrative tied to an icon like Doomsday, that might be hard for some, but I'd implore you to try and to consider just how many adapted works since the dawn of comic book movies, which diverge from their source material without detriment. Doomsday himself has been adapted to many different effects and different continuities from Smallville, Justice League Unlimited, and the New 52. And if you find the name too loaded with meaning, just discard it and call him Frankenzod for all I care, whatever it takes to help you clear your mind. And if you do that honestly and earnestly with yourself, you can abandon needless attachments to the death of Superman as inevitable or to judge the present fictional adaptation adaptation in front of you based on appearances and past works. 
In two weeks, generations of Star Wars fans are going to watch and enjoy The Force Awakens without regard for that alternate history laid out in what has now been branded Legends. Those who can't let go suffer at the hands of their own obstinacy and inflexibility. That's one of the major themes to the downfall of Zod and his inability to accept any other kind of Krypton. Nothing requires or dictates that this adaptation of Doomsday be bound by the follies of prior continuity. If, for example, you think that Doomsday has been boring and one-dimensional, that has nominal bearing on whether this Doomsday will be the same. Fictional characters are malleable storytelling tools. Mr. Freeze could be criticized as boring and one-dimensional until Heart of Ice. Many of the Flash's rogues were laughable until given compelling psychologies. To believe a character must be a certain way without exception is unnecessarily limited or small-minded. You're entitled to your tastes and your preferences, but the wholesale rejection of the possibility of something new or different is just punishing yourself. Accepting Doomsday in a different context isn't that difficult if you can accept that Lois learned Clark's secret first. Accepting a Batman with vehicle-mounted weaponry isn't really a cinematic issue, and it's no more of an adaptation than Wonder Woman in World War I or having an Aquaman that isn't blonde. Now, second, related to that, consider the potential thematic importance and impact Doomsday could represent to the Trinity, even from the scant little information we have now. If Doomsday comes from the raw material of Zod and has a heat vision-like attack, he represents a second redemptive chance for Superman and Batman to conquer a past trauma together. For example, Superman might contain the conflict in a way that he couldn't the first time, and Batman doesn't have to be a powerless bystander, but he can participate in the fight. Superman may revisit the question of lethal force, and Doomsday could breed compassion in Batman once he's been put in Superman's shoes against a foe who utterly outmatches him. Batman will have more empathy for Superman's debut, and he'll have the humility to realize that he needs Superman and Wonder Woman to take on future threats like these. As the brainchild and the product of humanity's hubris, it goes further to resolve Batman's fears and angst directed at Superman, who's done nothing wrong, but merely possessed the potential. Doomsday establishes that that potential exists in humanity just as badly, and the monster serves to provide a trinity-level threat to bring them together, and certainly more themes could be revealed as the story unfolds. Third and finally, I'm fairly confident Doomsday will evolve in appearance as the battle continues. And if he doesn't, it isn't the end of the world, but Snyder does have a history of evolving and escalating action. Now, some contend if there is a a final, more familiar form, why not show it? If they've already spoiled this much, why not that? And I think the short answer is that this is to acclimate us to his first appearance so that it's less confronting in the film. Think of Kylo Ren's crossguard lightsaber, but more on that a little later. Look, we've seen seven seconds of this character, so let's just relax until we know more. That said, let's analyze what we did see. We're hit with a bunch of deceptive edits, but Doomsday appears to be two or more stories tall. He's going to tower over all of our heroes. Just falling, he has the size and the weight to cause the pavement to erupt into the air and send four vehicles flying. Just for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call his energy attack heat vision, although it erupts from his mouth as well as his eyes, and that power seems reasonably derived from Kryptonian physics 
physiology. And if that connection exists, he may be similarly vulnerable to things like kryptonite as well. Well, at least at first, if this is a doomsday that overcomes his weaknesses with impossible speed. I'm not necessarily on board with the logical rigor of a plot device power like that, that is evolving to overcome any weakness, which honestly is too semantic a power to be biologically driven. But I suggest that they'll have a more deft and internally consistent portrayal of that power. For example, in the past, we've seen that environmental adaptation beyond what a human can do is a Kryptonian trait. So at least there's a baseline premise for it in Man of Steel. The model for Doomsday is gorgeous, and it's meticulously detailed in a way that doesn't completely show up on YouTube. If you're a diehard fan, I recommend downloading the high bitrate version. And interestingly, Doomsday has calcified protrusions along that same place that Jor-El scarred Zod. Well, Doomsday is going to look better in motion, in context on the big screen, after the film has introduced you to a world of weird where a monster like Doomsday seems possible. That said, right now, it sticks out as distinctly CGI, even if it's well-executed CGI. There are ways to introduce CGI entities that are less confronting, but that's not the goal of this trailer, but we'll get into that. I have absolutely no qualms about the close-up animation, the breathing, the animalistic roars. He's very much a monster, capable of leveling skyscrapers with his heat vision alone. His roar, his history, his presumed status as a mutated and reanimated corpse tends to suggest a lack of intelligence, and perhaps that's to give the Trinity a pure and unambiguous monster to fight, a dragon to slay, something to give them a clear-cut victory after all the shades of gray in Man of Steel and the fight between Batman and Superman. And that's part of the reason why the Doomsday template offers something valuable to the creators. He can be as nuanced and as relevant as they need him to be, and rather than making him this needlessly complex character that they have to develop at the 11th hour, he can exist as a plot device, similar to how he was first introduced to our collective consciousness. He can be something to solidify the dawn. Now, seeing Batman in that cockpit reminds me that there's another theme throughout this trailer, and that's to show Batman is vulnerable. He's competent and a badass, sure, but he's not invincible or an untouchable god. In this trailer alone, we see Batman captured, unmasked, on his back, pushed down, and swearing at Doomsday. The fact is, without help, Batman dies in that cockpit. The trailer is carefully setting expectations throughout. Anyways, Zod's heat vision can be stopped by Wonder Woman's shield and apparently Superman's skin and suit. The effect is subtle, but it looks like part of him are glowing with heat before cooling off, similar to the more pronounced effect with Wonder Woman's shield. Now, speaking of Wonder Woman, Doomsday's attack heralds her entrance. There's not much to say since this is all we've got to go on for now, but to me, she looks incredible. Composed, steely-eyed, she exudes a warrior's strength, and she seems equipped to tackle a fire-breathing dragon alongside a dark knight and a man of steel. I like that final trinity shot, but something seems slightly compositionally off for it for me. Individually, they all look awesome, but standing together like that is a little odd. I like it, don't get me wrong. I'm just not rushing to make this my desktop wallpaper. Granted, this is their first meeting, and they aren't a coherent fighting team. They're literally just standing together, and not the Trinity yet. But we'll see how it plays in the context of the film. So speaking of this as their first meeting, we've got to address those lines. She with you? I thought she was with you. 
I know some are going to hate this exchange, but I loved it. Maybe not as a joke, which are kind of awkwardly smattered throughout the trailer, but because of what it represents. The fact that neither of them recognize Wonder Woman means that this is their first encounter with her. And the fact that they've got this easy kind of banter between them means that they've worked things out between themselves before and without her intervention. And they've lifted the weight of the world off their shoulders. Now, granted, I think her playing Peacemaker would have been interesting, but not needing a third party speaks volumes to their character and their ultimate friendship. There's nothing wrong with needing a third party to resolve differences, but even better if they got there on their own. The banter reflects hope for change, cooperation, friendship, and it's a peek into their future adventures as the world's finest. You know who I was thinking about the other day? Who? Magpie. The criminal? Do we know another magpie? Whatever happened to her? She died. No. Are you sure? Reasonably. Why is it the good villains never die? Clark, what the hell are good villains? I suppose it's useless to tell you to leave. I wouldn't miss this for anything. Your funeral. Already had one. The fact that neither of them recognize Wonder Woman also means that there's still stuff in this world to surprise even the world-weary Batman. Given the photo of Bruce and Diana dancing at Batman's older age, many were quick to assume prior ties to Wonder Woman before Dawn of Justice. However, this means that they all start on equal ground, that they are all new to one another, and that this can be a genuine Dawn, rather than just being somebody who was left out being let in on the secret. That equal playing field, democracy the Justice League, rather than making it about seniority. Okay, let's tackle some of the problems with this trailer and some possible apologetics for why it makes some strategic sense. Briefly, people are going to be upset at how much they think or feel was being shown, believing that they could outline the entire film and being especially bothered by the banter, Wonder Woman, and the visual reveal of Doomsday. The editing could be criticized, the music dinged as repetitive and generic, the uneven tone of humor, grim and seriousness, then banter, and finally some might take issue with, say, Lex's performance. I'm sure that this trailer is going to be criticized as being directed at unsophisticated viewers. And in my opinion, that's kind of right. And why this trailer is awkward to watch, but good for the film. To me, most of this trailer is like a giant flu shot meant to inoculate the general audience against the same kinds of issues that arose with Man of Steel. Roughly speaking, I think this trailer does four things that the beautiful Man of Steel trailers might not have done. One, reset expectations. Two, spoon feed exposition. Three, allow the audience to focus on the film rather than plot or shock. And four, appreciate the film for what it is rather than what they felt was advertised. The Man of Steel trailers were fairly solid on avoiding spoilers, but consequently many viewers made tons of basic viewing comprehension errors. I mean, how many people missed how dominant Zod was in that final fight and came away thinking that Zod was an outmatched underdog that Superman could freely manipulate? How many people missed Jor-El's explanation for why he didn't join Kal-El? How many people missed Zod's deeply enshrined inflexibility and then constantly propose alternative 
courses of action for this inflexible Zod. How many people thought that Clark had super speed before he learned to fly? And so on and so forth. Man of Steel's plot isn't that complex, but it is layered with a few twists and turns, a lot of show don't tell, and a few shocking moments. Full comprehension usually comes out in multiple viewings, but there's a significant portion of the audience that would have done better if they didn't have to worry about plot, exposition, shock, or expectations. As a silly example, consider that crossguard lightsaber from The Force Awakens. I think it was a brilliant move to show that early because all the shock, criticism, confusion, and questions were all talked out and ultimately acclimated and completely accepted. So now, when you see it for the first time in context, you're not suddenly thrown out of the movie with a head buzzing with issues and you can simply enjoy the flow of the film. And yeah, that comes at the cost of a mild spoiler and surprise, true, but you get to enjoy the film better than if you're still debating the logistics of a crossguard lightsaber in your head two scenes later. Man of Steel actually did this approach with Jonathan's maybe line, and while it's still a problem for some, the vast majority of people came to terms with it before watching the film and had no issues while watching the film. Now contrast that against, say, Zod's death, where the film actually provides ample time to process and move on under subsequent viewings, but that first-time shock can leave some unable to appreciate what those subsequent scenes are doing because their mind is still reeling. And so these trailers help inoculate us to give us time to accept ahead of time things that might be potentially confrontational material. For example, we know that Lex Luthor is going to have hair for the bulk of the film and that he has an exuberant and over-the-top side. We've already learned that Batman can own and operate a number of guns. We've learned that Batman may potentially kill and at least brutalize and brand. We've heard Martha say that Clark owes the world nothing. We've seen that this is a world with enough weird. We've got flying insect soldiers, an Amazonian warrior, and Doomsday. We've seen Doomsday's initial form and appearance. We're prepared for the unexpected appearance of Wonder Woman, and we get an idea of what kind of humor to expect, and on and on. That initial scene in the trailer is fantastic, and there's so much to chew on. We spent like 10 minutes just on it in this podcast alone. However, if it wasn't in the trailer, people wouldn't appreciate everything that was going on in that scene, and they'd likely gloss over it when watching the film. And if more casual viewers didn't get a taste of this flamboyant Lex first, or didn't see Doomsday debut, those confronting things would be turning over in their heads instead of appreciating the rest of the scene. They would be too busy mentally criticizing Doomsday's initial appearance to appreciate his fast and furious on-screen evolution as Wonder Woman tries to hack him to pieces and bony protrusions grow into protective armor to stop her sword. There's value to being shocked and surprised by Doomsday, but when a character is so laden with pre-existing expectations, it's a smart marketing move to preempt those expectations for a smoother in-theater experience. This trailer primes those casual viewers to get over the shock, to air their grievances, let those issues fade in the ensuing months, then fully appreciate the film for what it actually is, rather than some one-sided debate of what it's not inside the mind of that casual viewer. I know this sounds utterly crazy, but it's vital to reset expectations to an attainable level for a film where some are anticipating a religious experience. Purely thematic and tonal trailers, which heavily avoid spoilers, certainly keep the hope of that kind of possibility alive, but they also result in severe backlash when the film fails to conform to an ideal that existed only as atmosphere. Some fans have already built elaborate mental cathedrals involving everything from Christian Bale to Omax to Jason Todd and beyond, and they've set themselves up to be disappointed if the film didn't conform to their wild imagination 
imaginations. So while it's true that a spoiler-heavy trailer will preemptively disappoint those kinds of fans, they have a third of a year to recover, get over it, and bring their expectations in line with what the film is actually about and actually is. And while you and I may say that we hate spoilers, apparently the science says that we don't. I'll put a link in the show notes, and if I have time, I'll put some clips after the sign-off. Anyways, the trailer may seem like the product of focus groups, but there is method in that madness. From Rovin's interview, we knew that this trailer was in the works for a while, and I have to believe that its effect was equally calculated, even if its presentation was not as artful. Okay, enough of that. Let's talk about that nightmare scene and sneak peek, which was unquestionably artful to me. So we talked about this way back in episode 27, and I feel like most of my predictions are coming true. As we discussed then, I believe these scenes come from a future dystopia where Superman rules and Batman runs the rebellion. I think the scenes roughly come together like this. Batman's men are riding across the land to let him know Superman's forces are coming. Batman emerges from his bunker and Superman's forces are already there, gunning down Batman's men and with orders to take Batman alive. To make matters worse for Batman, flying, rifle-wielding insect soldiers are snatching up his men. They're traveling in the same direction as the soldiers bearing the crests of the House of El, so I believe them to be aligned. Incidentally, if you look in the background, there's these faint, jagged shapes in the sky. Are those fallen skyscrapers or crashed spaceships? Who knows? Batman is swarmed and eventually overwhelmed. He's knocked out and captured. And when he awakens, we get the sneak peek footage. There's only 30 seconds of substance, but it's still pretty interesting. Batman awakens and he takes stock of the situation. That means that despite the suggestion of some, this probably wasn't a part of his plan unless he could predict that he'd be safe while unconscious. Although Batman isn't in control, he's still composed and he isn't panicking. But before he can actually do anything, we hear a distant sonic boom and Superman crashes down into the bunker. I don't think that's an intentional display of power, but just the fact that he doesn't have to care about landing gently in an enemy bunker. There's some visual effects to add dust, wind, to play with the focus. I think I preferred the cleaner version, but it's not a big deal. Superman's men bow. And in this context, this Superman tolerates, if not expects or demands, that kind of respect. So if you consider that even soldiers who are willing to die on his behalf have to show this level of deference, how much more might a rebel leader be considered as disrespectful to the king of the world? Batman's eyes go slightly wide, his mouth is just a little agape, and there's a trace of fear backed by the score which would be fitting in a horror film. Superman's frown is actually physically subtle, but the look is so dissonant that it takes on exaggerated significance in the mind. You imagine him with a completely twisted up, sneering face when everything is just slight. A slightly furrowed brow, slightly baggy eyes, the corners of his mouth slightly turned down. But altogether, it feels set. Like this is how his face has had the displeasure of being for years. And for a second, we see through the eyes of both men. From Superman's perspective, Batman helpless and afraid. And from Batman's perspective, the tyrant reaching for his head. Batman is unmasked and completely vulnerable. He's breathing heavily and trembling, his fear laced with anger now that Superman has torn away his face. Superman examines that mask as if to say, that's it? This is what separates you from everyone else and what has caused me all this trouble? This thing that's so easily removed? Cut to black, but most likely Batman is executed. 
So let's talk about how this sequence fits into the film and why it's creatively justified. What would make a dream sequence good storytelling technique when it's typically something we deride as without import or impact? Well, to me, this has to be a vision or a dream sequence because there's no place for this to fit in the normal continuity of the film. You'd need the time and the space for Superman to have marshaled forces that bear his insignia, who bow in deference to him, and where he's comfortable receiving that kind of kowtowing. He'd have to have flying alien support troops, and Batman would have to have his own forces slaughtered and a bunker to be captured in, and then to go from there to a story where they make nice, cooperate, and disband their forces. Even if you try to use Lex Luthor as lubricant to explain how those forces arise, it doesn't explain Superman's comfort with others bowing to him, his hostility towards Batman, or Batman agreeing to bury the hatchet after Superman's men gun people down. There's just no way to get all the way there and all the way back with the rest of the film's story. But in the outline that I give, it can all be summed up with basically four words that practically explain everything. Superman Tyrant, Batman Rebel. That's all you need. With that concise description, you can fill in the blanks within a dream space all on your own. Time passed and my grip grew tighter. Barely a decision was made across the length and breadth of the Soviet Union without my permission in some form or another. The population was largely grateful and obedient. But the freedom fighters, inspired by the death of Batman, remain something of a problem. My desire for order and perfection was matched only by their dreams of violence and chaos. I offered them utopia, but they fought for the right to live in hell. Even those crazy insectoid soldiers, which could be any number of things from the product of continuing Kryptonian science, remember their dropships have an insect-like appearance and that theme could carry through their technology in other ways, to an alliance with another alien race. After all, Man of Steel is a first contact story, so who's to say additional contacts don't follow? To something as specific as a new cinematic adaptation of the Parademons, if allied with Darkseid. Titans! It seems that the second part of this special event will entail saving the Justice League from Darkseid. The Darkseid? Ha <laughs> ha! Finally! We got some Star Wars up in this piece! Should I be dressed like Han Solo then? And I will be the Baka that chews. Not the Darkseid! Darkseid! The most dangerous villain in the universe! Powerful enough to defeat any hero he faces! Even Superman? Yes! Batman? Yes! Spider-Man? Well, Spider-Man wouldn't fight Darkseid. Is it because he is too lazy? What a bomb! You know, this really lowers my opinion of Spider-Man. Within a dream or a vision, that level of exposition isn't really explicitly necessary. Although, depending on the degree of authenticity and the predictive power, there would need to be a reasonable correlation with the source of the sequence. So, for example, unless Batman is somehow aware of parademons, he probably shouldn't be dreaming of them. Although, he might have nightmares about Kryptonian genetic experiments run amok or humans becoming second-class citizens on Earth if Superman takes over and allies with alien races who come to inhabit Earth as he did. If, however, the vision is not the 
sum total of his fears, but instead something with prophetic quality, such as something magically driven or coming from an oracle, then everything has to be plausible within the world and not simply the product of an emotional response. Anyways, with the tyrant-rebel dynamic, you immediately understand their disdain for one another, and granted, you might have to explain how they got there, but really all it takes is four words. She was my wife! <laughs> but you're nothing like the Superman I know. He's no tyrant. I had to take control. There was no other way. For too long, I fooled myself into thinking I was doing a simple cleanup job, that if I did enough good, people would follow my example. I didn't realize it was a war, and suddenly, you were a casualty of that war, and I knew I had to stop it by whatever means possible. You did this because of me? Now, where do you fit a sequence like this? Well, rather than explain all the problems with the alternatives, let me just pitch you some reasons why it makes narrative sense towards the beginning of the film. Not necessarily the beginning of the film, but towards the beginning. So basically, the entire framework of this film is Batman against Superman and then making up. However, much like we've talked about with the marketing, trying to inoculate general audience into not taking some basic ideas for granted, a dream sequence like this can help initialize the audience expectations or calibrate them without fouling up reality. Take, for example, Batman's limitations. The flashback to the BZE shows us how vulnerable Bruce is as himself. Yet without calibration or initialization, it's hard to know how vulnerable Bruce is when he becomes Batman. In some cases of tradition, he's basically a normal man wearing a bat suit. But in other cases, when he dons that cowl, suddenly he becomes an unstoppable ninja god. Without knowing Batman's limits, there's no stakes in the fight with Superman. But the problem with pushing Batman to his limits in the real story world is that he has to survive it and then come back from it and we don't have time for medieval back rehabilitation in a prison pit in Dawn of Justice. But within a dream sequence, Batman can show how badass he is by taking down as many troops as he can, but eventually we see his limit. We see that he's mortal, can be taken down, and can be captured without Superman even having to lift a finger. Showing how vulnerable Batman can be provides stakes for the future fight. And at the same time, the dream sequence manifests what Batman fears without actually forcing Superman down that road. Instead of being this abstract paranoia that Batman has while the rest of the world accepts Superman, a predictive vision gives some credence to his fears and lays them out in a tangible, visible example for the audience to grasp and empathize with. Even if the audience doesn't agree, they can understand why Batman feels the way he does towards Superman. Maybe. That vision also shows that Superman can dismantle Batman without actually having to dismantle him within the real world of the story. And that helps give weight to lines like Superman saying, if I wanted to, you'd be dead already. Without that dream sequence, it's just sort of an abstract idea that some might have difficulty imagining if the audience's view of Superman is too benevolent. But the dream sequence shows us that it's true and it gives gravity to that line and that choice that Superman's making. The sequence keeps the audience from taking Superman's goodness for granted, and it reminds us that he's still a person with free will and choices, who doesn't just get to effortlessly default to being perfectly good and moral at all times. A set of bad circumstances and choices, and there, but for the grace of God, go I. It helps the audience appreciate that Superman could be a tyrant. He could just overthrow those people that would question him or subject him to inquests who scrutinize him and protest his very existence, and to not take for granted those daily choices which build him into a character 
who doesn't. And the dream sequence inoculates the audience and prepares them for a world of the weird three times over. First, by presenting the parademons or their ilk, which opens the audience's eyes to the possibility that this movie can go there. Second, the trippy nature of the dream itself presents a world where either oracles are providing prophecies or where vigilantes dream of vivid apocalyptic futures. And third and finally, that speculative nature of the dream, the what-if or elseworlds nature, opens the audience's mind towards thinking things through to their logical conclusions, rather than just assuming external external rules onto the world and taking them for granted. For example, in a world where Batman and Superman are literally at war, anything can happen given the right circumstances, instead of assuming that they could never be enemies and must be allies and friends simply by default and tradition. So you can see that the dream sequence, if it's placed towards the beginning of the film, can do a lot of work to get the audience into the right headspace to enjoy the film. And the sequence does one more thing elegantly, and that's provide motivation. If the dream is Batman's, it provides motivation to explain his fear and his distrust of Superman. Though personally, I'm not sure it's enough or that sympathetic to base your hatred of another person based on your nightmares. My personal preference is that it's a prophecy or vision for Wonder Woman to elegantly explain her involvement at this time. However, the logistics of explaining to the audience why there's this magical prophecy is a little more clunky than Bruce awakening in a cold sweat, right? That said, those logistics feed into the world of weird that we want Dawn of Justice to explore. If it is Wonder Woman's motivation, the stakes and the outcome of the vision have to go just a little bit further beyond Batman's death, and that could set the stage for a much larger universe-wide story. Either approach has its advantages, so I'm keeping an open mind. So one last silly thing to just wrap up this podcast. With only scant seconds of footage, everything in the sneak peek fell under really heavy scrutiny, and one thing that arose a few times was the issue of Batman's black eye makeup disappearing the instant that he's unmasked. And the sensible thing to do is simply hand wave the issue as irrelevant to the larger story and tone. They made a creative choice, which to me was the smarter and less distracting one. I suspect the vast majority of the audience is happy to go along with, ignore, or not even notice the disappearing eye makeup. You've got to make certain allowances for filmmaking and not everything needs to be explained. That said, if you absolutely have to provide apologetics, it's certainly not too difficult. As long as we're in the context of that sequence, which is very unlikely to be completely literal, like the sepia coloring of the entire scene, whether it's a vision or a dream, those kinds of shortcuts are common. Even within Man of Steel, in the Dream Machine sequence, they had those irrational leaps in reality, which is sensible because that's how we dream. But if somehow we're backed into a corner within the film and the same thing happens outside of a dream, is all hope lost? Well, first I'd advise you not to hang your hopes on something so trivial. But second, there is still a way out. And basically, he just needs some form of high-tech, mutable makeup or a tattoo. He could have ferromagnetic makeup that turns black in the presence of his mask, or an advanced tattoo which does the same. It would take a sizable amount of R&D to take us from where we are today with LED tattoos to using something like biomimicry to copy the talents of an octopus, squid, or chameleon, but it's not impossible. Just as the modulator in his mask interacts with his voice, there might be a component that interacts with 
with his makeup or his tattoos. I don't take this answer particularly seriously. But if that's what's holding you up, there's your answer, which allows for the possibility while consistent with the real world. If you're gonna take any issues with masks, first challenge Robin's domino mask before worrying about makeup. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Inside Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. Here are some other podcasts I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Armature Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist signing off see you next time you're the answer son Spoilers might be the bane of Twitter, but NPR's Neda Ulibi has this shocking surprise ending. Spoilers may not be such a bad thing after all. Spoilers have become enough of a preoccupation for a university to study them. Psychology professor Nicholas Christianfeld is at the University of California, San Diego. He examined what effect spoilers have on people's enjoyment of stories. So we chose various quite famous short stories, had people come in, and in one condition we spoiled them beforehand without using the word spoiler. Appropriately, the spoiler study had a surprise twist. Christianfield learned that spoilers are, in fact, enhancers. It turns out when people knew what was going to happen, reading the story was more enjoyable. That makes sense to Time Magazine television critic James Ponowazek. It's much more terrifying to know that something horrible is about to happen than not to know that it's about to happen. That's Alfred Hitchcock's theory of suspense, Ponowazek says. It's not like the movie Psycho gets ruined when you know in advance about the shower. 
Ponawasik says people are violently against spoilers now, partly because we started to use Facebook and Twitter right when the way we watch TV began to change. Now people wait to watch shows on their DVRs or Hulu, but they still get angry when other people talk about their shows online. But there can be another kind of pleasure in a spoiler, says director Kevin Smith. His movie review show on Hulu is called Spoilers. I'm not one of those cats. It's like, I need to be precious going in. To be honest with you, I, I want to know more. I'm voracious. I am the internet. And as much as I'm like, feed me. Smith says a little advanced knowledge can be useful. When Kevin Smith does not want to be spoiled, he has a simple solution. Just stay off Twitter. Netta Ulipi, NPR News. I am joined now by Nicholas Christenfeld. He's a professor of social psychology at UC San Diego, and he has just published a study entitled Story Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories, um, along with Jonathan Lovett. Um, thanks for joining me today. So we're interested in the role of suspense in fiction, and it came from bigger questions we had about why it is that people spend so much time with completely made-up stories that you'd think if your goal was to learn about the world, you would never read fiction. Right. Because then you learn things that people just made up about the world or made up even about other worlds. And one thought about fiction is that what it's very good at is suspense. That is, you don't know how it's going to end, where if you read a story about World War II, you kind of know who's to win in the end. And so we're interested, is this suspense the critical part of fiction and you can tell whether that's true by taking away the suspense by spoiling it and so this is an empirical question do you in fact spoil things by giving away the ending now I think it would be a good time then to talk about the results, which I think are very interesting, or what you found. Yeah, the results were unambiguous, that in all three cases, all three kinds of stories, and we did multiple stories in each category, these spoilers actually make people enjoy the story more. And people actually prefer having read the stories when they know the ending. And this is true for mystery stories, it's true for these literary stories, it's true for these ironic twist stories, that they're the spoilers, in, ha- in fact, are, as we suggested earlier, enhancers. It's an enhancer in that you're able to then pay attention to other aspects of it. You're able to appreciate the literary qualities of the story or more subtle details that aren't all wrapped up in what's going to happen next. And there are two sorts of, of reasons. One, as you suggest, is, is as you read these stories, the plot isn't really the point of it. That is, you know, if you just wanted to know who did it, you could just flip to the last page and think, oh, it was the butler, right? And you saved yourself an hour of reading. And so clearly discovering who did it it is a trivial detail. And what you want is the unfolding of the story, the the artistry of it, the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. I actually talked to a French filmmaker who had just contempt for plots. And he said, you know, the plot is like a coat hanger displaying a garment that is necessary. Otherwise, a garment's just a crumpled heap on the floor. But you don't say like, oh my God, the coat hanger is so amazing. I'm so glad to see the coat hanger. It's just an excuse for doing art. You know, you don't need a plot when you look at at a great painting or you don't need a plot for a great piece of music. You just want to see the artistry unfold and a a plot is the structure that lets you do that. So that's one of the arguments. The other argument, which made the results seem almost obvious, is if you think about how people actually enjoy great books and uh, movies and even television shows, huge numbers of times it's obviously spoiled for them. That is, when you go and see Hamlet, you don't think like, don't tell me if he's going to die or Romeo and Juliet. Like, oh, are they going to get together happily? Obviously, you know the answer to that and it doesn't in any way diminish your pleasure watching it. In fact, if you think of Shakespeare's plays, mostly the title even tells you whether it's going to end happily or not. It's called, for example, All's Well That Ends Well. You don't go into it thinking like, oh, God, I don't know 
know if this is going to end well. Oh, wait, it is. I wonder if you have any insight into this, because I was actually talking with someone recently about the the habit of watching movies over and over again, how I have some movies that I love that I've seen, you know, probably over 20 times because they're just like comfort food to me. And I I know exactly what's going to happen. And I like running through it over and over again, loving having been spoiled, loving knowing exactly what was going to happen and running it over and over and again. But it certainly does. You point out the second time you watch a movie, it's spoiled. And people watch suspense movies and these ironic twist movies, again, often with increased pleasure. So the second time you watch The Usual Suspects, you in fact, I think, have a a richer experience because you can see the unfolding narrative about Kaiser Soze in it. And you can understand what the filmmaker is doing with, with, with greater knowledge than the first time. So people don't just say, like, oh, yeah, done that move on, they, they can now go back. In the same way, you can watch Hamlet knowing the ending, you can watch these little usual suspects with pleasure knowing the ending, and often, as we found, greater pleasure. Uh, and it's exactly the kind of suspension of disbelief that, that all fiction entails anyway. Right? People are sad at the end of Romeo and Juliet, but it's made up. There is no Romeo who's dead, right? You didn't know him, he doesn't exist, there's no reason to be sad. But you can enter into the narrative, and you can feel the anguish, even knowing that it's inevitable that they'll have the poison and the dagger and so on. And that doesn't matter. That is the fact that Romeo and Juliet is spoiled. It is completely immaterial because to some extent it's spoiled because they don't even exist. And that doesn't matter. There have been two responses to this finding. One response from about 10% of the population is, oh, I knew this all the time. And in fact, when I read books, I flip to the last page. I know some people who won't go to movies without first discovering the plot of them. So about 10% of people actually prefer spoilers and they loved our research because now all of their friends who mock them, they can say, no, no, I'm right here wrong. The other 90% of people simply don't believe it. Uh, (laughs) Say, well, that's all all very well and good, but I know that spoilers ruin things. And and it's a fascinating response for a start, that one's intuitions trump empirical data. (laughs) And that's a deeper issue. But I think what's especially salient about it is one is almost never in the position of knowing whether or not spoilers spoil things in one's own life. That's When I see a movie, I either see it knowing the end, or I see it not knowing the end. And I don't know what my experience would have been the other way. Right, yeah. So I go and see Hamlet, and I love it, and I knew the end, and I don't think like, wow, spoilers didn't ruin that. I just think, well, Hamlet's a great play, you know, and then something else, I don't know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I know the end, and I go and see that, and I think, eh, it wasn't so great, and I think, well, it wasn't so great because it was spoiled, but I really have no idea that it, that this can't be done intuitively. You simply don't have the data. You're the answer, son. 